This is Emergency Care in Scotland. I'm Stuart Ramsey. I am a paramedic who works out of Glasgow East Station and I am here with... Monica McKenna, uh, who is an E&E consultant at Glasgow Royal. And today we're going to talk about asthma, ambulance service treatments pre-hospitally and then the patient's likely journey through hospital. So Monica, how long did it take you to become an A&E consultant? It's taken me 10 years, uh, but mostly because I've been working part-time. I've got little little ones at home. Um, and before that, a couple of years uh, of junior kind of foundation year training after medical school before I decided to go into emergency medicine. So how long was medical school? Five years. So five years at uni? Yeah. Uh, some people do six. They do a, an extra, uh, what we call an intercalated degree. And they come out smarter, but I wanted to be done. Um, so five years... And then I did two years in Glasgow of the foundation year training, just getting the basics really, you get to experience a lot of different specialties and then decide what you want to specialise in. Um, I went down to Liverpool and worked for four years to try and work out what I wanted to do and because my husband's job took us there uh, and that was a great experience, that was brilliant. And then I came back here in 2015 and I've been moving around hospitals in the west of Scotland since. So we tend to move every year or so. Uh, so you get a good grasp of all the different departments within the west of Scotland. Um, and kind of get to taste how different departments work. And all of different A&E departments. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we're going to talk about asthma today. Mm-hmm. And I've got a definition here, which is inflammation of the bronchi, making them narrower. The muscles around the bronchi become irritated and contract, causing sudden worsening of symptoms. The inflammation can also cause the mucous glands to produce excessive sputum, which further blocks air passages. Asthma affects 300 million people worldwide. The NHS spent £1 billion in 2016 and 17 on treating asthma. It affects 5-8% to 8% of the population, and asthma attacks kill 3 people each day in the UK. That's a lot. And I've got the only things I've got to add are that um, an inquiry in 2014 showed that most asthma related deaths occurred before admission to hospital, um, which is where hopefully you guys come in and prevent that happening. <laughs> but I think that probably typically is people who can't get any access to any help and so die before that. Or they don't want it. Yeah, yeah. Or don't think they need it. Yeah. So I think if you look at our JR Calc, so our guidelines, um, I think the main message is that severity is not often recognised. Mm-hmm. And hopefully that's something we're going to tackle by talking about it today. Um, so if we think about risk factors for asthma, so do we know what causes it? Or is it worse? Yeah, so um, there's lots of different fancy scientific answers to that. Um, but basically you've got airways that are hyperreactive for lots of different reasons um, and they intermittently become obstructed and most patients uh, on having a trigger would have a asthma attack and that can vary in different degrees of severity um, but usually presents with wheezing, breathlessness, chest tightness and coughing um, and the risk factors for having an attack 
would commonly be things like um, if the patient has an allergy, you know, pets or um, dust, any upper respiratory tract infection, so a viral or bacterial infection that acts as a trigger, um, or smoking, cold air, exercise, stress. Allergies. Allergies, yeah. And I think not using your inhaler or running out of your inhaler um, can be an issue. How about a stressful environment or anxiety? Yeah, definitely. I think um, that's quite well recognised, that emotional stress or physical stress can cause an asthma exacerbation. And if you're having an asthma attack, what are your... Sorry, if your patients are having an asthma attack, what are they going to look like? So, in varying degrees, uh, they can be... Just working a bit harder, so just that their respiratory rate's up, they're tachypneic, um, they can be sweating, diaphoretic because of the anxiety related to it, they can be very anxious. Um, they usually, we hope, are a nice pink colour, but the other thing when you're assessing them is that they can have evidence of cyanosis, so you want to be looking at their fingers and their nose and their general colour um, and I don't know if you have anything else to add. Um, so my experience of people having asthma attacks they, they kind of look, they, they know they're having an asthma attack and they mm-hmm. give you this kind of look because then they know they need some extra assistance yeah. um, when that kind of gets worse they're wanting to put themselves in a tripod position mm-hmm. and they're kind of in charge of how they want to sit, they know how it makes them they know how it makes it easier for them to breathe. Yeah. Um, what we've got here on the JR Calc, so if we're looking for... It's, so I think the reason it's under-diagnosed is because people don't really know the exact figures of when to uh, define each type of asthma attack. So the JR Calc here has very helpfully put it into some numbers for us, which can be quite boring, but it mm-hmm. makes it very easy to define each type of asthma attack. So if we look at mild to moderate asthma exacerbation, uh, these patients are going to be able to speak in sentences. Their symptoms are going to be increasing. Their peak flow is going to be 50 to 75% of their best. They're not going to have any features of acute severe asthma, which we'll go on to in a minute. Their heart rate, if they are a child aged 2 to 5 years, their heart rate is going to be less than 140 per minute. And if they're a child aged five years or over, their heart rate is going to be less than 125 beats per minute. Do you know the adult figures there? Yeah, so for um, adults, their respiratory rate less than 25 breaths a minute and their pulse rate less than 110 beats a minute. And for children's respiratory rate less than 40 breaths per minute for children aged two to five and less than 30 rest per minute for children age five years and older so best thing to do when you're thinking about your asthma patients is get your JR calc out and look at these figures because you'll forget them and then if you have any of these you'll be able to quickly figure out where your patient is on the scale and then treat them accordingly so how are we going to treat these patients who are having a mild to moderate asthma exacerbation so I think we've got to think about those risk factors or the triggers as we were talking about before. So if they are in an environment that you think is stressful um, or very cold or there's lots of smoke, 
um, you know, you want to try and remove those triggers and remove the patient from that environment. So take them to a calm, warm environment. Yep, such as an ambulance. I don't know about that. <laughs> Just out, out of the home where the huge family domestic is happening yep. or out of the home where there are five dogs living there and mm-hmm. they're allergic to dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we think about some quick questions we can ask our patients so we're taking a history in all our patients but we want to just think of some really quick fire questions Mm -hmm. to figure out if this person's at risk of deteriorating so what is it you like to ask your patients so i think number one question would be have you been admitted to critical care so have you been in intensive care or high dependency with your asthma before yeah because if the the answer to that is yes then that makes you worried about this patient that they've had previous admissions requiring intensive care or critical care, then they've got the potential to, to deteriorate and end up there again. And the JR account's very helpful again. So uh, on the same kind of plane as that, we've got hospital admissions for asthma, especially if in the last year requiring three or more classes of ad- asthma medication. So we'll go on to the different medication we have. Um, previous admission requiring intensive care, that's the question I like to ask straight away. Um, repeated emergency department attendance for asthma, especially if in the last year. So if I ask someone if they have been to ICU with their asthma and they say no, then I'll say, have you been in A&E with your asthma? And they say yes. And then I'll be asking how many times they've been in and when mm-hmm. it was. And if they say five times in the last six months, then you start to think maybe they're going to deteriorate. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Uh, we've also got brittle asthma as a warning. So can you tell us what brittle asthma is? Yeah, brittle asthma is um, quite an old-fashioned term, but it's a subgroup of asthmatics who um, don't have any obvious triggers for their asthma, um, have a lot of variability in their response to treatment, uh, a lot of variability in their um, peak flows. And... These patients are have higher hospital admissions and uh, a greater chance of deterioration. Um, so, so awkward asthma patients yeah. with possibility to deteriorate quickly mm-hmm. without warning. Yep, yep. Yeah. What about a family history of asthma? Is that yeah. important? Yeah. So if it's someone who doesn't actually have a diagnosis and this is their first presentation, then asking about. Um, you're trying to ascertain really, is this an asthma attack? Does this patient have undiagnosed asthma? Then a family history is a, a very um, you know, good sign because it indicates that they uh, have atopy, which is a kind of group of conditions where you have anaphylaxis, asthma, um, eczema, you know, food sensitivities. So if they've got brothers and sisters or parents with asthma so a family history is a big indicator that, or a big risk factor for developing asthma yourself. And another thing I like to look out for is non-compliance with treatment or monitoring. So a lot of the patients I get to see that are unwell with asthma, it's kind of their own fault. They've either not replaced their inhalers mm-hmm. through a laziness or they don't think it's serious enough they're probably used to getting treatment whenever they need it and um so kind of non-compliance of day-to-day looking after themselves yeah. is kind of the main issue i've noticed with some patients yeah and i suppose you'll maybe see patients who have had pretty stable asthma and maybe not um got their inhaler reissued by their gp 
and then uh, upper respiratory tract infection has triggered off okay. and they suddenly realise, oh, that inhaler is out of date. Or, or so that's patients who are usually quite well, although mm-hmm. they have a diagnosis of asthma, mm-hmm. and then something, so they're quite compl- complacent about their inhalers because they don't usually, usually need them, mm-hmm. and then they find themselves in a situation where they suddenly do need them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I wonder if during COVID and uh, access to healthcare was more difficult, whether people have um, not been able to get to the GP or the practice nurse to yeah. reissue inhalers or their pharmacist, so um, maybe we caught out and found they don't have an inhaler on them. Yeah, I noticed that. I've taken three people in the last year to hospital just to get an inhaler mm-hmm. because we couldn't really, the GP yeah. route wasn't viable. Mm-hmm. So if we talk about the treatment for mild to moderate asthma exacerbation. Yeah, so I think, as I said before, remove any obvious triggers. Try and treat the patient in a calm environment, um, which I know is not always easy and not easy in an emergency department for us either. Um, You're thinking about trying to get them to use the inhaler that they've got if they've got one on them. And they can either, you know, take two puffs of their inhaler and see if they get a response. Um, sometimes we use a spacer to try and increase the effectiveness. You most commonly see them used in children. Uh, and what you want to do is attach the inhaler to the end and give a puff of the inhaler and then allow the patient to breathe that medicine in for 60 seconds. So you're trying to improve the effectiveness of it Um, and you can do that up to 10 times. So one puff for every minute um, and allow the patient to breathe in the medicine. So I think spacers look like large hard plastic balloons. Yes, yeah. Yeah. And I think when they're in children quite often you'll need the parent's help, you know, to get them to sit on the parent's lap and the parent hold the actual big plastic tube. Um, and press the, the, the inhaler down. Um, then Yeah, and then they can have a... Um, if they have an... Sorry, that was there. Just so we've encouraged them to use their inhalers. Yep. If they have a space, we encourage them to use that because that increases the effectiveness of subutamol, which yep. is in their inhaler. Yep. What would we then be looking at? If they're not improving, then you can think about giving them a nebulizer. Um, so the same medicine, the salbutamol, but via a nebulizer. So we should probably say the way we're going to know if they're improving or not is to continuously be assessing the patient. So we're going to be doing a full ATE on the patient. Mm-hmm. We're going to be giving them treatment, as we're discussing just now, and we'll be reassessing the patient constantly looking for signs of improvement looking for signs of worsening and then if the patient is worsening we're going to be looking at the next stage in our asthma algorithm and what treatment we're going to be giving so we just assume that the patient is so we're talking about a nebulizer just now so a nebulizer is a way of administering medicine to people through breathing Mm -hmm. so we're going to pour salbutamol into a little acorn shaped bit of plastic mm-hmm. we're then going to use oxygen to vaporize the medicine mm-hmm. and then they're going to inhale it and that is going to hopefully improve their asthma exacerbation what is salbutamol how does it work 
So it's a beta-2 agonist, um, which causes bronchodilation. So um, relaxes the smooth muscles in the airways and tries to open them up so the patient can have better gas exchange, get more oxygen in, breathe out their carbon dioxide. We are indicated to give subutamol when we have listen to someone's chest and they've got an expiratory wheeze. Mm-hmm. Um, so would we be giving oxygen before this or would we be giving oxygen separately after we've given this? So the advice is that if their SATs are above 92, um, then we don't need to consider oxygen, especially in a moderate or mild to moderate exacerbation. The aim of oxygen is to try and maintain someone's SATs between 94 to 98. So if they've got uh, an O2, an SpO2 less than 92, they certainly want to be giving them oxygen, and that's in the more severe cases. But the nebulizer, if we're giving it, is given with oxygen, so um, 68 litres is what drives the nebulizer, drives the medicine. And the effects on this could be tachycardia as well? Yeah, yeah, as a sort of side effect of it can cause tachycardia in a patient who might already um, be tachycardic because of anxiety and because of um, the fact that they're working hard. So it's a good idea to take special care in noting the pulse before the subutamol nebulizer goes on. Yeah, absolutely. And then you can see if there's any drastic increase in that. Yeah. And then the nebulizer itself moistens the airways, which helps in an asthma exacerbation, eh, as well as the action of the drug itself. Um, so we're still talking about moderate, mild to moderate asthma exacerbation. Mm-hmm. Would we then move on to give... So let's say this patient has improved mm-hmm. and I'm going to take this patient to hospital... I think this patient is suitable to go to triage, not resus. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that would be appropriate. And some of these patients with mild to moderate asthma, if they respond to their inhaler, um, they could be managed at home. But I think the majority of them would probably be brought to hospital for further assessment, which is completely appropriate. Um, and they can go to triage, and if their observations are still the same and they're still a mild to moderate case, then they would be managed by one of the doctors in the emergency department. So how long would they expect to be in the department if they had improved and they were okay? How long do you think they would have to wait before they get discharged? Usually a few hours. Um, I think it depends on whether they've had that nebulizer or not. So if they've only had an inhaler, then we might be more um, likely to send them home within the four hours. If they've had a, a nebulizer... I tend to want to keep you alone for four hours since they've had that nebulizer, because if that wheeze comes back in that four hours and they're going to require another nebulizer, then they're going to be admitted to the hospital. Okay. And when you mean admitted, are they going to a ward? Yeah. 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 Ideally, a, a respiratory ward is where these people are best managed. But this is still not an emergency right now. This is not life-threatening. Yeah. Not, life-threatening. not not any need to pre-alert these patients. I don't think. But I mean, sorry, in the hospital, is mm-hmm. this just considered standard treatment? Yeah. So they're being admitted, but it's not anything that anyone's really worried about just yet. Yeah, I think the issue with these patients is they've got the potential to go off, right. which is why really we admit them. And is that a technical term? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Official emergency medicine term. 
um, that you won't find in any books. <laughs> so the reason they're getting admitted is in case they're going to deteriorate. Yeah, risk they, of deteriorating. And they want to be in a hospital when that happens. Yes, ideally. Right. And the other thing to think of for these patients is what's triggered the exacerbation. So um, we don't necessarily do chest x-rays on these patients. They don't all need blood gases done. Um, but if you think from the history and examination that they've probably got a you know, bacterial infection, a chest infection on top of it, then you might want to consider antibiotics, you know, whether they're in hospital or on discharge. And then there's not much point in sending someone home to the environment that's triggered their asthma attack yeah, for exactly. it to happen again. Yeah, yeah. And so we also give patients steroids. Um, and in a mild to moderate case, we could just give them oral prednisolone 40 to 50 milligrams. And what's that going to do? Stabilise the airways, reduce any inflammation that's caused by whatever trigger. Excellent. So if we move on now to... Is that the only treatment for mild to moderate? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. So, so yeah. if we move on to acute severe asthma. So this is defined as a peak flow of 33 to 50% at best, inability to complete sentences in one breath, Heart rate of over 110 in adults, over 125 in children aged over 5 years, over 140 in children aged 2 to 5 years. A rest rate of over 25 rest per minute in adults, over 30 rest per minute in children over 5 years, and over 40 rest per minute in children aged 2 to 5 years. So if your patient has any one of those values, it means they're having an acute severe asthma attack. And we would be treating them with five milligrams of subutamol, and then we would be treating them with 500 micrograms of ibuprofen bromide. So they're both nebulized. What would the difference be in hospital? And would you expect to see someone with an acute severe asthma in resus? Sometimes, um, I think the important bit of that initial assessment or their, their definition of uh, acute severe asthma is the inability to complete sentences in one breath. That's the thing that tends to worry yeah. nurses and doctors and paramedics. Yes. Um, that's the one sign that, that rings alarm bells for all of us. So I think depending on the patient, yeah, they could be managed in recess um, or in a monitored space in the main department so that they've got very close monitoring. And the best way to determine if someone's unable to complete sentences in one breath you've got a good trick so you can get the patient to count up to 10 or 20 and that just gives you a good exa- a good idea or sometimes ask them their address yep. including postcode yeah. and you can quickly see if they're struggling yeah I think that's uh, very helpful um, The that's probably the main reason why a patient being triaged um would trigger them, the nurses to ask whether they need to go to recess or to go to a monitored bay okay. in the department. And quite often nurses come round and they say, I've got an asthmatic patient and they can't speak in sentences, um, which springs us into action. So that's one very simple question to ask about your patient mm-hmm. and think if you need extra assistance with yeah. that. Yeah. And what about treatment for these patients? Yeah, so as you said, a, a nebulised subutable, five milligrams, and ipratropium bromide, 500 micrograms, 
via nebulizer and we tend to give them together as a combined nebulizer called a combineb um, and then again considering steroids so either 40 to 50 milligrams of oral prednisolone or IV hydrocortisone 100 milligrams and the reason for giving IV would actually be because the patient can't swallow the tablets normally they're you know working too hard uh, because actually the availability is the same whether you give it IV or what do you mean by availability? So the action of the drug and how quickly and how much of it gets into the patient's system. So there's actually not any difference between giving that orally or IV, the, the steroid. So we would also be giving hydrocortisone and it would be 100 milligrams IM and that's for life-threatening or severe asthma. So what would these, so we know what numbers those patients are going to have, what would they look like? So usually working pretty hard, uh, so their rest are up, they've got increased work of breathing, so you can see that they are putting themselves into a position that's most comfortable to effectively ventilate, so as you said before, tripoding position, it makes them feel they can get the most amount of oxygen into their lungs. Um, and they'll be sometimes sweaty, flushed, anxious, um, and again, in acute severe asthma, can have that that look in their eyes that they're scared. So, will these patients have a respiratory wheeze, and what will the rest of their chest sound like when we listen to them with a stethoscope? <laughs> so sometimes you can hear the wheeze from the end of the bed. Yeah. Um, and yes, on using a stethoscope, you should be able to hear a, a wheeze throughout the chest, so a widespread wheeze, which would indicate that it is asthma, it's a narrowing of all the airways that's causing them to feel unwell. And what if you had someone who had a wheeze on one side? Or so You'd be thinking, have they got a foreign body in there that's causing wheeze just on one side? Or are they having an asthma exacerbation and they've got wheeze on one side and a pneumothorax on the other side? Okay. So um, the wheeze is, is the thing that we want to try and improve with the nebulizers. Um, and so after we've given one set of combined nebs, then we'd want to reassess and hopefully the wheeze is settled. If it's not, then we can give further doses. So although you can maybe hear a wheeze from the end of the bed, it's mm -hmm. still essential to listen to the chest yeah. with a stethoscope. Yeah, yeah. This is end of part one.